but they are who we thought they were. And we let them off the hook. I got baptized in uh, Lake Minnetonka. I uh, hit a couple backflips. Playoffs? Don't talk about playoffs. You kidding me? Playoffs? I just hope we can win a game. My swag was having no swag. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment here of the Minnesota Sports Podcast for the 9th of November. Here, how's it going? I'm CJ Baumgartner. We're diving into all of the latest here in Minnesota sports, and uh, yeah, I'm gonna be honest. There's really not a lot of positive stuff going on right now. It's a very rather negative day. So we're going to try and find some positives. We're going to try not to make it a, a completely negative show, but it's not going to be great. I'm just going to, I'm just going to let you guys out with a forewarning, but let's dive right into the Minnesota sports podcast, talking about our Minnesota sports teams. And we didn't get a chance yesterday to talk about the Vikings game. So why don't we do that right now? And after every podcast talking about the Vikings game, we, do a little segment we call Stock Up, Stock Down, just kind of uh, relaying our thoughts on the previous week and mainly the previous game with the Vikings on our Stock Up, Stock Down. Stock Up we have is Cam Bynum, and he got thrown in because Harrison Smith got put on the COVID-19 list. And with the Stock Up here for Cam Bynum, he had a PFF score of 90.5 in his first start in place of Harrison Smith. And listening to some post-game comments from Mike Zimmer, or I, I can't remember their post-game or if they were the Monday press conference, basically said that Cam Bynum wasn't really practicing in that position all week. He was practicing in a different spot. So for Cam Bynum to come in and play well um, is a good sign. And we'll see how defenses play now that they have a whole week to study kind of what he does. But it's, uh, it's a good sign. Cam Bynum stepped in, played very well. A hard guy to replace in Harrison Smith. So in the one game, Cam Bynum played pretty well. Showed he could be a decent backup safety. And, you know, I would say for Cam Bynum, the career arc for him is probably that Anthony Harris, that be a backup for a number of years and slowly work your way in and maybe get to be on that starting level if you uh, can get to that point. Uh, looking at a stock down here, let's look at Clint Kubiak. Now this is, this is a bit of low-hanging fruit, so I don't really want to dwell on it too much. And we've already talked about it before in the podcast. But seriously, Clint Kubiak had no answers once his offense got away from the forward momentum of scripting plays. And it's an interesting, you know, scripting plays is something every NFL team does. And it's the first 15 plays of the game, you know what plays you're going to run. They are stuff that you've been working on all week. There are these plays that you've been working on all week. So when you come out in the game, you're going to fire off, get a good head start. You're going to get in the flow of the game, and you're going to see where you're at. And the Vikings do really well on those scripted plays. That's why the Vikings usually get a touchdown on their first drive of the game. They got a touchdown on their first drive of the game on Sunday. They got a touchdown on their first drive of the game the Sunday before and the Sunday before that. And so on and so forth. But that's the thing is they, they do so well then. And then as the game goes on, they get worse and worse. And that has to go on to coaching. And that goes on to the guy running the offense is you're not able to, you know, you're able to punch them and then they're able to counter. And now what are you going to do? Now they've seen your hand. How are you going to be able to give them something that they're not prepared for, but at the same time be able to land it? And that's been something that Kubiak has struggled with as his time as Vikings offensive coordinator. And that continues. And the biggest play that kind of puts the nail in the coffin for him, at least in terms of how bad of a game he had on Sunday calling plays, was that third down that the Vikings had in overtime. They just got a big interception off Lamar Jackson. The Ravens are one of the most blitz-happy teams in the NFL. And you 
you call all long developing passing routes, you don't have an easy route for somebody to go. Like you don't have just like a quick hitting route just to get the ball out of your hands so you don't take a sack and, and all that kind of stuff. And I mean, just not great with that. Also, we talked about the scripting plays. The Ravens, uh, Clint Kubiak doesn't do well script when they're off scripted plays, which is why Mike Zimmer said the comment of, well, maybe we have to script plays coming out of halves, and to which then there was a comment or a report that uh, Baltimore doesn't really script plays. They just kind of go with the flow and how they're feeling. And guess what? The Ravens are a prime example of, and we'll get into this in a second, of why, you, why your coaching staff builds around your players, not the other way around where the players have to adapt wholeheartedly to the coaching. But let's take a look here at another stock up. Let's be positive here. And I want to give a positive to Christian Derrissaw. Now, through his first three-plus games, he hasn't been lighting the world on fire, but he's been solid. His PFF grade hasn't been 65.3 and only one sack so far in his three-plus games of action. And honestly, he looks like a guy... Now, again, he doesn't look like a guy who's going to say best left tackle in the league. He doesn't look like a guy who's going to be that. But if he can just be an above-average offensive tackle in the NFL, that's where Riley Reef was. And Riley Reef wasn't a bad football player. If if Christian Derrissaw could just be an above-average NFL tackle, a guy who can hold his own against most of the linemen. There will be linemen that will give him trouble. There will be games he'll kind of have bad games. But if you're just consistently just above average. You don't have to even be exceptional. Have like pockets where you're exceptional and then pockets where you're not. You're just consistently above average. That's what they need out of NFL offensive linemen. They have an above average to really good right tackle in Brian O'Neill. Even if they have just an average tackle in Derrissaw, that is still something that is going to help the Vikings out tremendously from an offensive perspective if they can figure it out. Uh, with the rest of their positions, but having two bookend tackles doesn't hurt either, and Christian Derrissaw is a big reason why that they, uh, with him only giving up one sack so far this season in three-plus games. That's why I feel like they have their tackle situation set for at least the next season or two or, heck, even five. So that's a great thing to uh, to watch for Vikings fans. Now we're going to finish up with another stock down, and that stock down is Garrett Bradbury for the second week in a row. And you might say to yourself, hey, CJ, uh, Garrett Bradbury didn't really, uh, he didn't play on Sunday. And to which I respond, yeah, uh, he didn't play. And because Bradbury didn't play, uh, it honestly wasn't, did you really notice that Garrett Bradbury wasn't playing? Because I sure didn't. I mean, honestly, like I got halfway through the game. I was like, oh yeah, I didn't, I didn't even got after the game. I was like, oh yeah, Garrett Bradbury didn't play. Like, he didn't do anything, and to which you saw Mason Cole. So Mason Cole, if you guys remember, he was a guy that the Vikings got in the offseason in trade with Arizona. Now, Mason Cole uh, was just meant to be a backup platoon lineman, so he's not somebody with a high ceiling. He's not a developmental guy. He's just a guy the Vikings got for depth. Mason Cole, in place of Garrett Bradbury over the week, had a PFF grade of 73.9. During 58 offensive snaps, no penalties, no sacks allowed. So about 73, 74, you know, great out of 100. It's not terrible. Not uh, It's not, you know, lighting the world on fire, but it's definitely a very good grade. When you look at Garrett Bradbury, when you look at his season so far, it uh, hasn't been exactly that. So let's see here if you want to look at Garrett Bradbury's 
stuff on Pro Football Focus. Garrett Bradbury, here we go. His PFF score is 56.2. So he almost had a 15 to 20 point difference in improvement. And again, PFF isn't necessarily the, uh, the be-all, end-all. But Garrett Bradbury has tied for third in penalties with five and has given up a sack so far this season from the interior. And again, it's just things that Mason Cole has played well. And granted, it was only one start, but Garrett Bradbury looks like a guy who hasn't quite found it. And honestly, I thought he would turn a corner this season. So far, he really hasn't turned a corner. And the same issues that he's had have still been the issues that keep him back from really being a consistently good NFL offensive lineman and somebody that the Vikings would consider resigning. And now he just still kind of sits in that camp of guys where it's like, are the Vikings going to cut him? Are they going to, what are they going to do with him? Because they put a first round pick in him and they can't just get rid of him for nothing and, and all that kind of stuff. So it'll be interesting to see to watch that going forward. But honestly, Mason Cole could probably start over Garrett Bradbury and the Vikings offense wouldn't just run without a hitch. They they probably would be better as well. So now let's take a look at the uh, coaching staff here, because that's been the big question now, is this is just another case of the Mike Zimmer style of football coming back to bite the Vikings in the butt. But I will say props to Mike Zimmer for getting his team to come on and play. I mean, they had a devastating loss against Dallas at home on national TV, all that kind of stuff against a backup quarterback, and Mike Zimmer got his guys to come in without Daniel Hunter, without Harrison Smith, with all this kind of stuff, and still be able to come out and have a great game, and still be able to hang with Baltimore until the very, very end. And that's something that coaching does well. And I think Zimmer's always done a good job of making sure his guys show up to play. Because, and I was thinking this earlier, when's the last time the Vikings really got blown out of a game? I mean, you can think of Christmas Day. Sure, you can think of Christmas Day of last year. But besides that, when did the Vi and that was kind of towards the end of the year when the Vikings gave, gave up. The Vikings, when they're truly playing hard, they don't get blown up. So the Vikings are a good enough team. They usually come prepared for the most part. I think it's just the way that they're teaching them to do in those late-game situations that has really come back to hurt this team. And, you know, props to playing hard and having the good initial game plan. But good teams and good coaches, they find ways to win. And the Vikings, who are 0-4 far so far this season, just don't have that possibility. The Vikings just cannot find a way to win games, and it is incredibly infuriating. The Vikings are 0-4 against winning teams as well this year. They are just not having a good year. They're just struggling in a lot of aspects in terms of that, and especially something that's always bugged them, and, and that's beating teams with winning records, or at least has bugged them during the Kirk Cousins, Mike Zimmer portion of the era. And here's another thing with uh, with this offensive style. And you can blame it on Zimmer. You can blame it on Kubiak. I'm going to blame this one more on Zimmer because he's the one who ultimately can go into the offensive coordinator's office and boss him around and do whatever he wants and still lets this go unchecked. So props to getting the team ready to play hard for Zimmer. But again, there's no reason that with 10 receptions for Justin Jefferson, 10 receptions or 10, uh, 10 receptions for Justin Jefferson. You want to know how many, uh, Tyler Conklin's had, I believe it's over the last two games, 14. They're targeting the tight end, who was originally supposed to be a backup, more than a guy who should have won Rookie of the Year last year. It's just ridiculous how they are not refusing to get into the ball. And I know that they're trying to guard Thiel, and I know that they're trying to guard Jefferson, but here's the thing. You can still scheme guys wide open. That is still okay, and they're not able to do that, and you can still just 
you let your guys go make a play. You can still loft one up there. You can maybe throw a risky pass and make your wide receiver run in a tight window and get it. You can give a screen and make your wide receiver uh, make a move. I, I don't know. The point is the Vikings have just run into a wall with this, and there's nothing that they can do or at least nothing that they want to try to get Jefferson the ball more because Jefferson got a 50-yard touchdown last week. And that's the thing is when you find ways to incorporate Justin Jefferson into your game plan, your offense gets better. But instead, they kept trying to force-feed Delvin Cook throughout the whole game, and it just didn't work. He had a great first half and a not-so-great second half, and it came back to bite the Vikings because, again, this is just another case of Mike Zimmer football. It's the same record, uh, same record. It's the same week, but a different song, broken record, whatever the phrase is. The point is, is it's not great for the Vikings. And, again, the Vikings scored a touchdown on a special teams play to begin the second half. That almost made it worse on the team, I think, because they don't attack. And especially when they're ahead like that, Zim teams have, again, we'd say that they rarely get blown out. But at the same time, they rarely blow other teams out as well. And they it's not, I don't know if it's playing down to your competition. Maybe it is. It's just kind of, it's just taking your opponent lightly or thinking that you're just going to roll over and win. And it doesn't always happen that way. And that's how you end up running yourselves into situations like that. And P.J. Fleck with the Gophers is in that same boat. They're rowing it together. Get it? Uh, but, yeah, it's it's not been great for for the Minnesota Vikings in that regard. Because, again, Justin Jefferson should be getting so many targets. And the Vikings should be able to not have to worry about taking their foot off the gas pedal and what their offense is going to look like when they do that. Here's the stat for you, by the way, with how unaggressive the Vikings have been. Mike Zimmer teams, or at least Mike Zimmer's team this year, has won the turnover battle two plus times in four games this season. It's about three or four games. They're winless in all of those games because even though they cause turnovers, even though they do all, they win the turnover battle, all that kind of stuff, because of their lack of aggressiveness, it just goes for nothing. And that's the thing, is it's just so tough to watch that this team gets gift after gift against playing a backup quarterback in Dallas after getting the gift of the interception in overtime and at the end of the at the end of the uh, first half and just all the gifts that this team gets and they keep blowing it it's just it's a Minnesota, it's such a Minnesota sports thing to do in that uh, in that sense but the big question is when is Zimmer going to lose the locker room because if they can't find a way to win that Packers game is going to be a big test because if Zimmer can get the team motivated to play Green Bay and at least you don't even have to win but necessarily keep the team in it, you can justify it. But if the if the Packers come in and Zimmer's getting blown up by so much that he's already looking forward to his trip to the Mall of America or the Rosedale Center or whatever afterwards of the blow against Green Bay in Minneapolis, then, then the Vikings are in trouble. And then you're really going to lose the team. And if the Vikings get blown out all of Brad Childress in 2011 style, there's a good chance he could lose his job that night if it gets embarrassing enough against Green Bay. And we'll talk tomorrow about what, you know, the case for and against firing Zimmer right now in the immediate or during the season and all that kind of stuff, and when the most likely firing would take place of Zimmer, because the more we go on, the more it looks like that it's just more inevitable than we think. So that's our look at the Vikings here today, but the big thing is, again, too conservative of coaching. The Vikings have some guys out with injuries and COVID. And more importantly, they're just not targeting the players that they need to target. They are not being aggressive. They are not going after the Jeffersons. They are not going after the Thielens of the world. They are not doing as much as they can to put the ball in their hands. And it shows and it really has impacted the Vikings. In the second, half of the, the second halves of games, 
the end of half situations, just everything. They've been unable to put together a full game, and it's because of things like that. But with LA coming up over the weekend, they'll have a chance to get things back on the right track. All right, now let's take a look here and into the Minnesota Timberwolves who played last night. And that happened with the Wolves, huh? That uh, that wasn't ideal. Uh, blowing the leads against Memphis and just never being able to play against Memphis, but more importantly, the way that the Wolves have played in the second half. We talk about how bad of a second-half team the Vikings have been. The Wolves have been also very bad in that aspect. It's been tough loss after tough loss for the Wolves. Carl Anthony Towns is literally doing everything for this team, and they still can't win. Again, the Wolves can never beat Memphis, but it just with Memphis, it's just another example of how a small-market NBA team that wins because of solid coaching and infrastructure you, know, you look at guys like in Utah for the Jazz. You look at guys who, heck, who the Timberwolves played in Memphis. When you look at some of these franchises who aren't destination franchises, but they have the good enough infrastructure and they have the good enough things in place to attract some of these stars, and the Wolves just don't have that. And more importantly, they don't have a winning culture to want to entice guys to come over there. And the only thing really I can say about this Wolves game last night is Wolves get a Wolves. The Minnesota Timberwolves are going to Minnesota Timberwolves, and there's nothing we can do to stop it. And, you know, again, it's just, it's an example of how a small NBA team should operate. They have stars, but not superstars. They play as a team. They have good coaching. They play well at home. All this kind of stuff that the Jazz do and that the Grizzlies do in the West, that the Wolves just refuse to do. And it's completely, completely infuriating that this team keeps screwing up in ways like this. And and they keep screwing up in ways of with the superstars and with the mismanagement of them, with the mismanagement of coaching staffs, with the mismanagement of players. Everything for the Timberwolves has been bad, including their roster. And that's the thing. The Wolves' roster was built very flawed. If Gerson Rosas wasn't fired now, oh boy, would his seat be hot right now because of how he's been putting this team together. It has not been good, and it has not been good for a long time. This team can't shoot, and on top of that, they also decided that they can't attack the rim either unless your name is Anthony Edwards. And everybody, when he gets the ball, they all know he's going to attack, so they're all honing in on that. I mean, the blueprint to beat this Timberwolves team is very simple when you think about it. It basically is, all right, stop Cat from driving, or, or stop Anthony Edwards from driving, I should say, and it's forced them to sh outshoot you. And the Timberwolves cannot do that. They have been shooting terrible so far. Again, this roster is built not great. I mean, this roster is just bad. The team can't shoot. They can't attack the rim. The only guy that can is Anthony Edwards, and even he has his moments. He's kind of not a sophomore slump, but it's just been a consistently inconsistent so far this year. And the defense is better for the Timberwolves. And I thought that this would be the turning point. I said, I think if they can play defense, I think this is a team that can really, you know, at least hold their own in the Western Conference. Not be in the top tier conversations, but at least be enough to be respectable. And the defense did get better, and that's been a welcome sight to see. The only problem is the offense has taken a massive step back. And if here's the thing. The defense is better, and I thought that that would be the turning point. But if they can't score consistently, then what is the point of having such a good defense? Because what does it matter? when you? I mean, the other teams are having some great defense against us. So when you look at the, uh, when you look at the points given up in the fourth quarter, or the points scored in the fourth quarter, 
uh, yesterday against Memphis, it was 21 points in the fourth quarter. Not great. When you look against uh, Los Angeles Clippers a few days ago, uh, they had 27 points scored. In the whole second half, I mean, high school teams can't even do that. High school teams can score more than that in the second half in Minnesota State High School League games. It's just it's just ridiculous. There's no late-game awareness with this team. And as I pointed out on Twitter yesterday, they're another Minnesota sports team that folds in on themselves like a dying star in key moments in games. They're a team that has the intestinal fortitude of a wet cardboard box in the wind being used as a tug-of-war by two uh, people who are homeless. I mean, I... I don't know. It It's not working out here with the Wolves. They have nothing going right for them in that situation. But they can turn it around. But the thing is, Carl Anthony Towns is just doing so much. D'Angelo Russell's been on and off. Anthony Edwards has been on and off. And even though Towns has consistently put together the best season, they still haven't been able to do anything because they don't have any shooters around him. They don't have anybody to attack the rim. He literally, again, just has to try and do this himself, and and that's just ridiculous. And it's going to either lead to him wanting to get traded or lead to the Wolves deciding that it's time to move on into the Anthony Edwards era fully in Minnesota. All right, well, let's move on now from the Wolves, and let's move on to the Minnesota uh, Gophers here, because why not? Because the Gophers and Payne, and I, I just love Mike Zimmer and P.J. Fleck right now, two Minnesota head coaches who give vanilla game plans and decide to just, again, be have the intestinal fortitude of wet cardboard boxes in the end-of-game situations. P.J., again, really, this is just feels like a duplicate of your bowling green loss. It feels like it was one where your defense played well enough, but your offense couldn't generate anything, and you took your opponent so lightly that you allowed him to make big plays on you. Was this a carbon copy of the Bowling Green loss? I mean, are you kidding me? They played down to competition because of that vanilla game plan and because of their poor execution. And online, it looked like you would have had a chance to get some uh, uh, O-line, I should say. Excuse me. The O-line looked like it had no answers for Brett Bielema's defense of Illinois, who, by the way, is 9-0 against the Gophers, dating back to his time at Wisconsin. And you, you don't trust the quarterback Plain and simple, you do not trust Tanner Morgan. And I understand some of the reason for that, but at the same time, if you really want to compete in the Big West, you're going to have to let your quarterback sink or swim. And if you can't let your quarterback sink or swim, it's time to move on and look for somebody else then to play quarterback. You have guys on the roster who can do it. They even get on the field. You're just going to have to rip the Band-Aid off and finally start the next guy in line. And playing down to competition has always been – uh, playing down to competition has been the Vikings' MO this season with their vanilla game plans and their poor executions and all that kind of stuff, which has led to the uh, which has led to the losses for the University of Minnesota uh, men's football team. But nobody, there's nobody really behind Tanner Morgan, and that I think is the big issue with quarterback. Nobody is behind him to really take his job. And PJ, even though he's getting out coached, even though he's doing this and that, he has the job security to bench Morgan. And maybe it's better for the future to have the guy rest and to have the guy do X and Y or, or whatever. But this is another good shot for you, PJ Fleck, to make a deep bowl game and everything is wide open for you to do it. And instead you just choose not to. And that's been uh, and that's been tough to watch as well. 
But the thing about P.J. Fleck, he still is a good coach. He's going to get that extension. I'm glad P.J. Fleck is still around. The losses like this are annoying, but they're livable. P.J. Fleck, again, the contract extension just got approved today by the Board of Regents. Not great timing, but again, still something that he, he's got to live with and something that he can do. P.J. Fleck is still the right guy to lead this program. But it's just, again, in the Iowa and Wisconsin conversations, if you had a good quarterback, you have a very, very good chance to beat all these teams, and you don't. And that's still what is holding your team back from getting into that upper echelon of the Big Ten West teams. All right, now let's take a look here. Let's take a look now at the Minnesota Wild here. Let's end on some positivity. So I got a chance to go to the Wild game on Saturday or Sunday night. Got to go to the X, got to watch Zach Parisi's first game back. And there were a couple notes that I thought from Zach Parisi's first game back. And one was that I thought it was very interesting um, how the game ended and why the game ended. But the one thing with the Wild I would like to point out is, hey, look, a Minnesota sports team that has the intestinal fortitude, that doesn't have the intestinal fortitude of a wet cardboard box in close situations, and actually can finish out games. That's been so refreshing to see. And the dirty little secret why they're doing this is because they have guys like Parisi not on the team anymore. Now, the Parisi return was classy, and Parisi should be honored. And he's a guy who definitely changed the perception of Wild hockey and helped put it on the map and in the franchise's young uh, young years and the big deal was Suter and it was the first time a Minnesota team really swung for it really swung for big time talent like that and I think you got to appreciate the Parisi Suda era for what it was but the Wolves or the Wild excuse me are trying to build off that and trying to go into a new era and trying to round themselves out a little bit more but the, so the way that the Wild ended this game the way that they played in the third period was very telling of the Parisi Suter era and it was Parisi and Suter teams folded late in the games, not necessarily them, but their teams did, and they really couldn't do anything about it. These wild teams, they just come back. I mean, they're down two goals to one in the third period, and they win five to two. I mean, it's just, I mean, they get two empty netters, but it's just things like that. They find a way to come back. They find a way to hang on. They find a way to win, even when they have the backup goaltender in net, even when all, just all of these other things, they still find a way to win the game. And especially when they're down late, and this is something that the old guard really struggled doing, uh, whether it was in the regular season or the postseason or, or you name it, just they had, could never get going when it came to them in late game situations. And the old guard was not this team, and their success, the success of the Wild right now, is because those guys are not being in power here. Suter and Parisi do not have any control over this Wild team. You could see it last year that the Wild were starting to turn into this group. You saw in the playoffs last year, they started to really uh, play better at the end of games. And that was already after Suter and Parisi were already alienated to the point where them getting cut was bound to happen. But uh, when you look at this Wild team, to be fair, it wasn't all Parisi and Suter. And to be, you know, in terms of that, Parisi, you know, Parisi had a uh, clutch goal in the uh, in the first round of the playoffs last year. It's going to help get the Wild, force that Game 7, all that kind of stuff. So Parisi still had his moments. They're just fewer and more farther between. And Suter was just becoming more of a head case in the locker room to deal with because of the fallout of all the, of all the Parisi stuff. But... I'm not going to say it was, you know, all the bad things. It's just, it's too convenient to dump all of the baggage and dump all the bad stuff on just them. But, uh, you know, it's still is important to note. And another thing, too, with this team is that coming back to win is great. 
but it's not always the best thing. You don't always want to be losing at the end of every game or in the third periods. You want to be winning a couple times. You want to, you know, be able to get the lead early on and try and take home the game from that point. But when you look at this wild team, having the skill of being able to come back late in series isn't necessarily a bad thing either. If anything, it's a big skill that a lot of playoff teams want, ones that teams like Parisi and Suter, when they were in their years in the wild, would have loved to have. And that's the thing with Parisi and Suter and just the rest of this wild team when you look at them. When, how many games have the wild won? When you look at this year's wild team, how many games have there been this season where the Wild were winning entirely through the game, or at least not in the third quarter, like they were winning before that? And the answer is not a lot, maybe one or two. And they've played about 10-plus games so far. So this is for the for the Timberwolves is just showing teams that, hey, these guys can play. The Wolves can cause turnovers. All of this kind of stuff. So you got to – the Wild, excuse me. The Wild force turnovers. The Wild force the puck. They do all of this stuff, and they get into late-game situations, and they win. And then they just know how to handle it. Something that the Wolves – not able to do. Something that the Vikings, not able to do. Something that the Twins weren't able to do. Something that the Gophers aren't able to do. Is that they put themselves in positions to win in games that they should win and in games where they have a swinging chance they at least hang until the very end and look competent throughout. So that's the thing. I think Minnesota Wild have the best chance out of any to do good right now. So if you're going to give one Minnesota sports team attention, I would give it to the Minnesota Wild. Well, I think that's going to do it here for us on the Minnesota Sports Podcast. We'll be back tomorrow right here with all the latest. Thanks for listening to the Minnesota Sports Podcast. You can find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Be sure to leave a five-star review and share the podcast on social media to help spread the word.